0: Uh, If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Herrick. I'm one of the pastors here at Store Church, and uh, I want to welcome you. So obviously, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Thank you for being here. Just by a show of hands, who's rooting for New England? Two people. Giddy up. Who's rooting for the Rams? All right. Who's rooting for burgers and beers? Yeah football divides, meat unites. So um, today's the Super Bowl, obviously. I'm a, I'm an Enneagram 5, if you've ever done the Enneagram before. I know there's a few people in here that have. If you haven't, go ahead and take it when you get home. Super Bowl starts at 3.30. Um, so I'm in like the thinking triad. So I'm like in my head a lot. So as I was thinking about the Super Bowl, I was like, there's... There's, you know, how many, how many people on a football team, like 70? There's like 150 men who have been preparing most of their lives for this moment, for today. There are 100 million people who are going to watch this game today. There is like $15 billion spent to put on this event today. Why? <laughs> you ever had that thought? I, this, is where, this is where my mind goes all the time. I'm just thinking about that. What's the point of this? And then it kind of hit me. It dawned on me. Oh, there's um, this isn't a trick question. This isn't rocket science. There is a trophy at the end. There's a prize. If you've never seen it, it's a football on a vase. It's exactly as stupid as it sounds. If you've ever seen it, yeah, Tom Brady's got like six of them. It's like... Sorry, I'm, uh, I'm prophesying into the future. <laughs> um, guys, let me know if I should just grab a handheld side note. Um, so Tom Brady, you're probably going to have six of them by the end of today. It's a football on a vase, if you like. And um, it's, and again, it's like, what's the point? What's well, a symbol, really. It's a symbol of what? It's a symbol of achievement, right? It's a symbol of success and excellence and recognition. It's an honor. So the, the eyes of the world today are on who gets this trophy, who gets this honor. And so this game is actually a means to an end. The Super Bowl is the means, and the end is honor for this group of people and their fans. All two of them. So... And then it kind of hit me again, since I'm, I'm just thinking all the time, asking questions to myself. Um, it got me thinking, like, I think this is true of us, too. I think we all live for a prize. I think we all live for honor, for a trophy, for a crown. And it's not necessarily athletics, although for some of you it might be. Or maybe it was. Maybe you're, you're, maybe you're still reliving the glory days of high school. And you're still like, like, what's the... Oh, never mind. I just can't go off the cuff. I'm thinking of Napoleon Dynamite, the uncle. Rico! You're Rico. That's like your glory. It's like, let's go back to high school, relive the glory days. For most of us, though, it's something completely different. And we've pursued honor and recognition in different ways. For me personally, when I was younger, there was academics. Uh, when I was in school, there was sports. Um, and then I realized I'm not that smart, and I'm not that good at sports. So in college, it was Relationships. And then I met Jesus. I met Jesus. And it pains me to say this, but the reality is, in my walk with God, I still seek glory and honor for myself from other people. And it's totally possible to do that. And I know I'm not alone. I'm not some freak. Like, this is us. This is all of us. A, yeah, it's freakish. It's weird to say that, that I would use God to get glory and honor for myself. But it's not, I'm not alone in this. This is something we do. Some of us, it's more like our jobs, our career. We want honor through our careers or through our relationships, our achievements, sometimes in the church itself. We want other people to see us, to honor us, to value us. And sometimes we want honor so bad that when we don't get it, we deflate like a balloon. Or if you're a New England Patriot, we deflate like a football. a good room for New England Patriots jokes. <laughs> but here's the thing. We know that this could cause a ton of problems. For example, you might feel crushed when you get passed over for a promotion or an opportunity. You may go into a spiral when you feel like someone rejects you. When you don't get that honor, you could even start obsessing about words. What did they mean when they said, I don't like you? You know, we might obsess over people's actions and how they reflect on you. I know for me, it's like, I've had thoughts before. It's like, I didn't get a chance to do what that person had to do. What the heck? Are they better than me? So-and-so must honor and value them more than me. And we can end up either crushed or angry at people, at God. We can do this in the church. So today, I want us to have that in mind Because we're going to talk about how we keep ourselves from being consumed by what other people think. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a whole lot more, too. But I want you to keep that in mind. So, turn, if you have a Bible, turn with me over to John 5, verses 37 to 47. We'll have it up on the slide. But to give you a little bit of context, we're in a series called Jesus Is. And if you've been with us, we've been journeying through the Gospel of John, just verse by verse, checking out who Jesus is, what he's done. And what that means for our lives. And so, uh, since it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in the, the Gospel of John, uh, to give you a little bit of context, right now in this part of the story, Jesus is in, a, he's, in a, he's being actively persecuted and harassed by the religious leaders of the day. They're getting ready to turn violent. In fact, there's one verse before this that says they're ready to kill him. So it's, the tension is thick. And if it helps at all to think about it this way, it's almost like Jesus is on a trial. He's on trial for claiming to be God while breaking the people's law. So they're bringing him up on charges, essentially. And so Jesus responds by explaining to them that the God that they claim to know in their Bible actually sent him and other witnesses to them to seek them. So here's what we're going we're to pick up in verse 37. John 5, 37 to 47. It says this. And the Father, this is God the Father, who sent me, this is Jesus talking, by the way. All the verses today are going to be about, it's going to be Jesus talking to these people who are are oppressing him and want to kill him. Verse 37, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one who has sent me. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. In other words, I'm not after your approval. Verse 42, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you don't receive me. If another person comes in his own name, you will receive him. 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Mike drop. It's almost like Jesus is saying like, hey, hey, God picked up the phone and called you. He left you a voicemail, okay? He WhatsApped you a voice note. He texted you. He sent letters. He sent people to your doorstep. He sent John the Baptist to prepare you for this moment, for me, and you missed it. That's what Jesus is saying to these people. So this morning, we're going to focus on one of the ways that God has communicated to us about his son. We're going to focus on the Bible this morning, and here's where we're going to go. And we're gonna tie it in to honor and approval later. But here's where we're gonna go. Here are my three points for this morning. Point one, they're gonna be up here. What the Bible is all about. Two, why we read the Bible. <clears throat> three, what Bible reading does. So if you're taking notes, write these down. One, what the Bible is about. Two, why we read the Bible three, what Bible reading does. So, point number one, what the Bible's about. Let's go back to John 5, 39. It says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. What does it mean that in the scriptures the people of that day thought they had eternal life? There's a really interesting quote from a first century Jewish rabbi. He says this, this kind of like helps frame the the mind space that the the religious leaders were in when they were talking to Jesus. This is what Jesus is addressing. This is Jewish Rabbi Hillel. He said this, The more study of the law, the more life. The more study of the law, the more life. If a man has gained for himself the words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. So for them, possessing the law, you know, which is contained in the Old Testament, was akin to having life. And Jesus is saying, no. No. Not the case. He's saying, the Bible's about me. The Bible's about me. And if we understand this statement, this should leave us gasping for air. Let's just pretend that I got up here this morning and I grabbed a copy of Homer's The Iliad. And I told you guys, this one this, this famous work of antiquity, it's about me. And you'd be like, stop it. You're stupid. And i would be like, no, seriously. Seriously, no, this is about me. And, you're, and you'd probably step back and be like, okay, yeah, I can see that. You're a warrior. And they'd be like, no. you know, And then I'd just keep going. At a certain point, you'd be like, take it easy, man. It's not about you. You could draw something from it, but it's not about you. But Jesus is doing something similar here with the Bible. It's kind of a big deal. Jesus is, is essentially saying, this is all about me. The Bible's about me. And if that's not true, if that's not the case, we lose Christianity. We lose Christianity. If we lose the Christ of the Scriptures, what are we left with? We're left with a book about God that teaches us Moral principles that we need to obey. That's what we're left with. Which, by the way, does that sound like Christianity in America, generally speaking? Principles, rules, do this, five tips to that, five steps to a better marriage. I'm not, I'm not opposed to these things. We need help. We need practical help on how to do things. But at the same time, if there's no Jesus in it. It's not Christianity. It becomes about us and what we, about us and what we need to do. So the Jews of that day were saying, if we have the law and we do it, we'll live. And today, like in America, we'll say, if we have the Bible and principles and we do it, we'll live. Or what's more likely, we'll say, if we have the Bible and do it, we'll be blessed. More likely that you'll hear that. But in any case, it's like God's blessing is life comes from our obedience to to the Bible. Having it, possessing it, studying it, devouring it. Uh, there was one, I was having a conversation with someone where I asked for thoughts on this text, and he told me, well, growing up, it was kind of like, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Bible. Like, that was the Trinity, essentially. It's like that sort of, sort of thinking is missing it. It's missing it. Jesus is saying, if this is how you read the Bible, forget it, you've missed the point. And as I was thinking about it, as I was chewing on it, I was like, okay, if the Bible's not this, this list of to-dos and what to do, what not to do, what is it really like? And I thought about it, and I was like, it's a will. It's like a will. It's like a final will that someone leaves. Not a, not a list of to-dos, though it does contain things that we need to do. It's a will. The Bible tells us about a rich inheritance that we have, the lengths of which, and the lengths that God went to preserve this inheritance for us and to make sure that we received it in full. Does that make sense? And then uh, along with it comes this, this teaching, this instruction on how we can live in light of the riches that we have. How can we invest this inheritance wisely? How do we receive a good return and use this inheritance to bless other people? Does that make sense? That's a lot closer to what the Bible is than a list of rules and to-dos. And here's the thing. if, it, if, if you've ever, re- I've never sat, maybe some of you have before, like sat, in a meeting where they're like reviewing someone's will and you're receiving something what should be pretty clear is like this is not about me but it's for me this is about the person that died and generously left something but it's not about me and what i need to do and if we if we read the bible as though it's about us what we need to do we miss the point i have a, another verse that kind of helps draw this out in terms of how is the bible about jesus Luke 24, 25 to 27. I think we'll have it up. This is a really important moment in the history of the church. Jesus is just, he just rose from the dead. And he's chatting with some of his disciples. We don't even know it's him. So they're talking and I love Jesus. He's like, hey, what are you guys talking about? He's like, you haven't, they're like, you haven't heard what happened to Jesus? These incredible things. And Jesus is like, what things and then they just start going, and it's like, oh, he died, and this, and we thought he was the Messiah, and then these women came, and they've got the story about seeing him. It's crazy. How did Jesus respond to that? They're like, they're confused. They don't understand what's happening. He says this. He said to them, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How would you like to be a part of that Bible study? Jesus just starts opening the Bible. It's like, this about me, this is about me, this is about me, this is about me, this is about me, this about me, this about me, about me. It's about me, it's about me, it's about me, it's about me. You know? Do you know what it says about what happened to those dudes when they realized it was Jesus? They say, We're in our hearts, burning within us, as we explain the scriptures to us. You know, there's this whole like burning in the bosom in the Mormon Church, Um, but there, you know, I think there's distortions of this. But there's a reality that, in a heart level, when we see that the Bible's about Jesus, we burn in the best way possible. I've had an experience of this. Maybe you've had an experience of this. I remember when I was not a Christian. This was back in two thousand and five or six. I was sitting at a church. Uh, gathering in San Diego and the pastor was talking about the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. He was reading a passage out of it and he said, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. It's like it's pre-incarnate Jesus. He's coming to his people. And I remember thinking like, if that's true, that's incredible. Like he was in it. It was about him. Like I'd never heard that. I grew up going to, to church my whole life, and I'd never heard, like, Jesus is in the Old Testament. The Old Testament's about him. The whole Bible's about him. And I burned, like, my heart burned for Jesus. I wasn't a Christian, but there was something that happened when I realized Jesus is, the whole Bible's about him. So that's, my first point is this, point number one, if you're taking notes, the Bible's about Jesus. The Bible's about Jesus. How is it about Jesus? In every way. And then we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But if you want to think about it this way, there's suffering and glory that the Messiah had to, suffer, he had to, had to go through. The Bible prepares us for that, his suffering and his glory. And so the Bible's not Jesus. So number two, why do we read the Bible? Why do we read the Bible? Look back at John five thirty nine to 40. It says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. why do you read the Bible? Do you read the Bible to learn about God? Do you read it for information and knowledge? Or do you meet it to meet with someone, with Jesus? Is the end goal acquiring knowledge or is it relationship with a person? What, what leads you to the Bible? The Bible is a means. It's not an end in itself. The end is Jesus. The Bible's a relational book. It's meant to help us encounter Jesus. So does your Bible reading lead you to be with Jesus, believe in him? Is it life-giving as you find Jesus in it, in his mercy, his goodness, his grace for you? How do you know? How do you know if you read the Bible this way, as God intended? I've got four signs. I I think I got it on the slide. Four signs that your Bible reading is probably not leading you to encounter Jesus. Number one, Bible reading consistently leads you to fear. Bible reading consistently leads you to fear. You read the Old Testament and all you see is curses for disobedience and an angry God. And you just feel afraid. Or you read the New Testament and all you see is like, end times! We gotta... Get... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Or you read the Sermon on the Mount and you're just like, I'm not doing this. And you're afraid because one day you're going to have to stand before God and give him an account. you're like, I don't know what I'm going to say. Like, sorry. You're afraid God will reject you. Does your Bible reading consistently lead you to fear? That's number one. Number two, Bible reading evokes feelings of guilt that linger. Does your Bible reading evoke feelings of guilt that just linger? It's like, oh man, I'm not joyful the way I should be. I'm not patient like it says. I struggle to forgive, even though it says to be merciful, and it just lingers and snowballs. You just feel guilt, and it just gets worse and worse and worse, and you don't find any relief for your guilt. Are you guys tracking with me? Is this making sense? Number three, this is the third sign that your Bible reading might not be leading you to Jesus. Bible reading makes you want to quit or rebel. Bible reading makes you want to quit. Or rebel. This would be like the, you read it, you realize what it's asking of you, and you're like, I can't do it, so I won't. Or you want to just give up. So quitting or rebellion. And then number four, the Bible, the fourth sign, the Bible reading, probably isn't pointing you to Jesus. And this is probably the most dangerous one. This is the one that's like clearest in this text. Bible reading makes you proud and self-reliant. Bible reading makes you proud and self-reliant. Some of us will read the Bible and we'll be like, I'm really going to do it. I'm going to commit to it this time. I'm going to be really serious about it. And it kind of fills you up with like a pride. And you look at other people who aren't as, who aren't doing it and you look down on them. Does this make sense? It leads you to think poorly of other people because you're like, I got this. I know what this is like, by the way. I'm not coming down on you. I'm with you in this. Uh, I remember when I was working at, I worked at a law firm for a, for a few years um, before I came on staff. And I remember at my desk, one year I really wanted to get organized. And so I had kind of like a to-do list that, was, that helped me like, prioritize what I was doing. And then at the end, and I, was like, I was reading the Bible a lot and I'm like, I'm really, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do what the Bible says. So I'm going to make up a list of things to make questions to ask myself every morning that were kind of based on the Ten Commandments slash like the ethical teaching of the Bible. So I had these questions like, number one, are you joyful? Number two, are you patient? Number three, this sounds, are you kind? I literally had this. Are you generous with your time? You know what I found out over time? I found out that I was Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec. That I was miserable, impatient with these people because they're stupid. Ron Swanson's a five. I'm a five in the Enneagram, if you know what that is. When it became all about me, it became a burden I could not bear. And I was an insufferable person to be around. And I just wanted to rebel against it at certain points. Like, oh, this is stupid. I'm never going to be this. And we can end up in this space. That's the way we treat the Bible. If it's about what we have to do, we get proud and puffed up or deflated. That's the real deflate gate. It's Christians who are just like, So, self-sufficiency, guilt, or rebellion. These are the, the signs that you're not reading the Bible the way it's intended. And I think all of us, if we're completely honest, do that. So in your toughest moments, which one of those resonates the most with you? Is it the self-sufficiency? Is it the rebellion? Or is it the guilt? I can't do this. Hold that for a second. What are some signs that you're actually reading the Bible according to God's intent? What are some signs that you're reading the Bible according to God's intent? As though it was about Jesus. Number one. This is the biggest one. This is probably the only one I'm going to get to today. You come to the same conclusions as the Bible does. You come to the same conclusions as the Bible does. What do I mean by that? I don't have it up on a slide, but just listen to these words. This is Ephesians 1, 4. I'm just going to read a few verses out of Ephesians 1. This is out of the NLT. It's a little easier to read. Verse 3, Ephesians 1. All praise to God the Father. So just let this wash over you for a second. Just chill and just listen. And just think, like, is this this what... I walk away with when I read the Bible. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Holy and without fault in his eyes. Holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us to his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. God was stoked on this plan of his to save us. I lost my place. Doesn't matter. He's so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Does Bible reading lead you to these conclusions? He showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. And I can't, I'm just going to run out of time here, but it just goes on and on and on and on. What conclusions does the Bible reach about us? You are loved by God, even in your worst moments. You are chosen by God. You are adopted as a son or a daughter of God. You're freed from slavery to sin and your sins are forgiven. This is all coming out of the text I just read. You're in a lifelong relationship with God through Christ and you've been given his holy spirit who's at work in your life. Is this what Bible reading inspires and evokes in you? If not, do you want it to? Do you want it to? And I want to propose to you real quick, you never will if the Bible is just about what you want to what you need to do. You're never going to come to these conclusions. But if you see that the Bible is about Jesus, it falls into place. So the way you know if you've read the Bible as intended is you come to the same conclusions about yourself as the Bible does. Which I think is pretty amazing. And you encountered Jesus. I recently was reading... Um, we have, we have a, a CBR, which is our community Bible reading. If, uh, if you're unfamiliar with it, it's basically it's a reading plan. It's a tool that helps us connect with God, but it's a reading plan so everybody can read the same scriptures. The whole church can basically be reading the same scriptures and encouraging one another with what we're learning. And recently I read I read Genesis 11. Do you guys know what's in Genesis 11? A genealogy. How excited do you get when you see a genealogy in your Bible reading plan? So... I was tempted to skip it. I didn't. I'm going to read the whole thing to you right now. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. But here's what it talked about. It was a genealogy of Shem's family. Shem is one of Noah's sons. And as I was reading through it, listen to the names that came up. Arphaxad. Shem, Arphaxad. Sheila, Eber, Peleg. Ryu, Sirug, Nehor, Tira, Abram. And as I was listening, as I was reading it, I was like, I know these names. I know these names. And so I flipped over to Luke three because I realized I've heard these names before. Where have I heard these names before? Perez. Nehor, Sireg, Ryu, Pileg, Eber in the New Testament. Do you know what this is? The genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus. And do you know what happened when I read that? My heart soared. Do you know why? I don't know where my family came from beyond that we're Spaniards, Catalans, and that I should be rooting for Barcelona, but I don't. <laughs> I don't know much about my family history. Our, when our daughter was born... It was like a party because she was the first girl born to the Burger family, and we don't even know how long. 100 years? 150 years? Forever? We don't know. <laughs> but I read this, and I, I started the first time in my life, tears came because I realized this is my family lineage. If I belong to Jesus, which I do, by his grace, I've been brought into a new family. So this genealogy is not a waste of time. It's not stupid. It's not pointless. It's our family story. That's what reading the Bible, and I was in tears. Like, this is, these are my, my ancestors. Ryu, Peleg, I don't know who they are, but they're my people. And this is what you can have when you read the Bible as though it's about Jesus. The Bible comes alive. Is this making sense? All right. So why do we read the Bible? We read the Bible to encounter Jesus. And lastly, my third point, what Bible reading does? What Bible reading does? So turn back with me to John 5, 42 to 44. It says this. But I know, this is Jesus again. Hard words coming from Jesus. Here we go. To the people he was talking to but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Jesus warned, maybe you've read, Jesus like warns a lot about false Christs, false prophets coming. And he's like, you, you take it all in. They just come in, and you take it. But I'm here, and you, you reject me. It's like he's baffled almost. Verse 44. How can you believe? False prophets come with false messages, by the way. Non-gospels that are presented as gospels. Bad news that's packaged as good news. Candy packaged at steak. Meat unites us. <laughs> 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses... You would believe me. And he says something else that I don't remember that Moses wrote about me. So why did the religious people of Jesus' day miss him? Why did they mishandle their Bible? What was going on at a heart level that caused them to miss this? Here's the only thing I could come up with. They were consumed, consumed. Their heart was consumed with what people thought about them. Their heart was consumed with what people thought about them and so there was no more space in their hearts to care about what God thought about them. I'm gonna say that again. If you're taking notes, write this down to chew on it later. They were consumed with what people thought about them and there was no space in their hearts. It got, the space in their hearts was crowded out. The space that was meant for Jesus was gone because they were consumed about what people thought about them. No more space to care about what God thought about them. So it's kind of like Jesus is saying to them, guys, the phone calls, the voicemails, the texts, the letters I wrote or that God wrote to you about me because you care so much about what other people think of you, you just didn't have room for this in your life. Jesus is saying if you are consumed by what people think of you, then people have become your God. People have become your God In the passage, it says, notice how Jesus said, you don't seek the glory from the one God? What's the implication there? That they're seeking glory from another God. You see what I mean? One or the other. One or the other. So that's bad news. Because that means that not everyone who has Bible knowledge, enthusiasm, zeal, years in the church, actually worships God. I'll say that again. I'll tell you a little slower this time. Maybe you guys will wake up a little. This is big. This is really important. Not everyone who has Bible knowledge, enthusiasm, zeal actually worships God. Not the case. So I want to ask you a question. Do you worship God? Do you honestly worship God? Or have people crowded out the space in your heart that's set aside for him? Have people become your God? Again, signs that people are your God. There's no, there's no space in your heart for what God says about you. This good news that we heard about the fact that you're a beloved son, you're a beloved daughter, just bounces off. Then it's just like right away, it's like, okay, I got to get back to my thing. It's totally a horizontal focus. Just what's in front of me? What's ahead of me? What do the people in the room think? What does this person think but Jesus here's the good news who's in the room with them Jesus what is he saying I'm here and I'm offering you life and he has hard things to say to them he's like you're content with small really small consumed by what's in front of you what do they think how will they respond when I do this what will I get out of it what's in it for me it's like it's all about you and how you feel and look and then God's out of the picture but Jesus is like, I don't care what people think of me. I care about you and I care about you receiving life so much that I'm going to tell you something that's going to hurt your feelings but might just save you. And I'm standing right in front of you. I'm here to give you life. What are you going to do with me? What you do with me determines your eternal destiny. It's intense, I know. I know. That Jesus' love for people expresses itself sometimes in tender words and sometimes in really tough rebukes. He gives us what we need to wake up because we're lulled into spiritual apathy and slumber. So I ask you the question: Whose praise do you seek? Who do you want to think well of you? Whose honor do you want? Is it your boss? Is it your coworkers? Is it your peers, the company you work for, your kids, your spouse, the future spouse you want, your teachers, your significant other or romantic interest? What do you want them to think about you? He's so smart and good-looking. She's so good at what she does. She's such a great parent. She, you know They're so thoughtful, they're so helpful, they're so loving. Like, what are you living for? What's the honor you seek? I want to propose to you that seeing Jesus in Scripture actually frees us from living for our own glory. That's my third point. If you're taking notes, write this down. Point number three, seeing Jesus in Scripture frees you from living for your own glory. We will never be free if we think that life is about us, what we do, and our glory, and seeking our own glory. But here's the good news. Jesus laid down his life for you. His glory, he set it aside, to become a servant. He, got, he came down, he put a towel around his waist, washed our feet. Really, he washed our hearts clean of the, the sin of living for people's approval. He's made us new people. He served us, you and me. He always cared about what God thought. He did not care what people thought. In the best sense of it, he cared about people, not about what they thought. He cared so much about what God thought that he obeyed God all the way to the cross, even when he preferred not to die. He did that for us. He followed God into the darkness of death and came out of the other side victorious in light. Hopefully that's good news to you today. I've got a video. Let me go ahead and play it. It's the true and better video. This is by a pastor. whose name is Tim Keller. This is what the Bible's all about. He explains it. He goes into it. Jesus is
1: the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. While God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now we know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who, struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, He's a truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. <laughs> is that a type? See, that's not typology. It's an instinct. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life. Who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, Says, when I perish, I'll perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's, he's the real Passover lamb. He's, he's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. Jesus is the true...
0: Yeah. We could just listen to that all day. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And knowing that, receiving that, frees us from living for the approval of people because he's already done everything. Now we get to become like him by his strength and by his power. It's okay to want honor. We kind of started with that the Super Bowl, the football and the vase, wanting that honor. It's okay to want that. It's just not okay to want it so much from people that you don't want it from God. It's okay to want honor from people. It's okay to want honor. Take it again. We'll edit that one up. It's okay to want honor. It's just not okay to want honor from people so much that it crowds out your desire to want honor from God that you don't end up wanting it from God. That puts people in the place of God in your life. That's an idol. You're worshiping a false god. You know what false gods do? They destroy you and they destroy your relationships. They kill you. They hate you. Jesus loves you. He gave up his life for you. Why would you want to, why would we want anything else? When we talk about it like this, it's like, oh yeah, this is stupid. (laughs) Jesus came to set us free. So here's what I want to end on. You are free to pursue honor that comes from God. You are free to pursue honor that wants from God. You are not free to pursue it from people, but you are free to pursue it from God. And the Bible has a lot to say about this. I don't have a lot of time, but I just want you to know there is an honor that comes from God that you can have if you want it. 1 Corinthians nine twenty five to 27. Paul says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath A football on a vase. But we, an imperishable one, an eternal one, a glorious one. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating in the air, but I discipline my body, keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I might myself be disqualified. The entire world is turning today to see who's going to win the prize the Super Bowl. It's a perishable wreath, not eternal. Heaven cares about the eternal prizes that you can have that won't be lost. And we have an, we have an opportunity to receive honor as we exercise self control in this life. God will honor that. Here's a good, even better news He will empower it. He will empower you to actually have self control. Where does self control come from? It's a fruit of the Spirit. Is this making sense? It comes from Him. So as you believe Jesus, as you submit your life to him, as you seek to obey him, he will grow you through the spirit. And guess what the end result is? The honor that comes from God, not from people. If you want the honor from people, you will be insecure. You will kill people in your relationships because they can never live up to what you want them to. But if you seek the honor that comes from Jesus, he will satisfy you. There's so much more I want to say. I'm running out of time. I'm out of time. But if you want to write these down, 1 Thessalonians two seventeen to 20 you can check it out later. Paul talks about another crown that we receive. James 1.12, James talks about for those who remain steadfast under trial. For those of us that endure hard things and don't give in to temptation, who have stood the test, will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Some of you have experienced terrible things in this room. You've experienced hurt. You've experienced pain. You've given up things to follow Jesus. Some of you have, have chosen not to compromise your walk with God in tough times. And guess what? There's honor. You may not get it now. The world might not care. The world might laugh at you and be like, that's stupid. Get what you want. Do what you want. And God, like, he values that. What the world rejects, he values and esteems. So, you, so, for some of you, I want you to know well done for patiently enduring. Keep going. Don't stop. Stick close to Jesus. Oh, oh, there's so much more. I'm so bad with the clock. There's a crown coming for those of us who live our lives to make disciples. There's a crown coming for those of us that live our lives to make disciples. It's so good. I don't have time to read it. And lastly, there's a crown for us who pastor in 1 Peter 4, 1 Peter 5, 4. And this is for me. I'm reading this for me out loud and I want you guys to help keep me accountable to this. I exhort the elders among you as a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as a partaker in the glory that's revealed, that can be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shows up on the scene, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's what's promised to us. We all, get cra- we all have the, the promise of, of crowns. But for us as pastors, I just want you to know I'm committed to seek the glory of King Jesus. Thomas too. And that when we see him face to face, we'll no longer be shepherds. We'll be just one of the flock. And he will give us the glory we seek, the honor we seek. Is this making sense? We don't have to live for the approval of others anymore. I'm going to call the band up. We've gone entirely too long, but we have time for a couple songs. So imagine if we as a community gave ourselves to this kind of life. What would happen if we give ourselves this kind of life? Imagine a life where, together as a community, we love God and each other with no strings attached. It's not a tit for tat, it's not a transactional relationship where if I give you this and then if you don't give me that, look out. Imagine a life where your only agenda is to make much of the one who gave his life for you. Would you like that? Would you like that kind of freedom? Imagine a life where you think less about yourself and more about God. Is that interesting to you? You can have that. Imagine a life where you don't need to be a big deal, but you will be honored. It is a big deal, but you don't need to be a big deal in the eyes of other people. This can happen as we encounter Jesus together as a community. And Bible reading is not the only thing, but it's a huge part of it. So, I want to encourage you guys, as you read the Bible, remember that it's about Jesus. Remember that you can encounter him and enjoy him as you read the Bible, and that it's going to slowly free you up from having to live for the approval of the people and focus your mind on what really matters, which is perseverance, patience, obedience, and a long, a long obedience in the same direction that ends with glory and honor from Jesus, and it's something that he empowers in you. Does that make sense? All right, you guys can go ahead and stand up to sing to King Jesus.